Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This is a podcast that focuses on helping you develop your career as a faculty member. Our goal is to spark your enthusiasm and passion in one of our four main pillars of development. Creativity and humanism, scholarly practice, leadership, and of course, teaching and supervision. Throughout this podcast, we're aiming to bring you insightful and inspiring conversations that spark your interests and open up your mind to new ways to grow as a faculty member. Okay, have we sparked your interest yet? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, MacVFD Spark listeners. Happy New Year. And I am so excited to bring you a new segment for this new year. Dr. Alim Naji is the clerkship director of the emergency medicine program here at McMaster University, but he's also a recent graduate of the Clinician Educator Diploma. He has been working on a special podcast segment that gives tips to junior educators, and so I'm really excited to have him and his guest, Dr. Kevin Dong, be on this episode, and so excited to have him be part of that. Next, we also welcome an adjunct scientist from Merit. So that's McMaster Education Research Innovation and Theory, which is our education research unit. Dr. Lara Varpio is here to speak with us about the pleasure and pain of writing. Both of these topics are really salient, really exciting, and hopefully you'll enjoy this first episode of the new year. Okay, welcome everyone to this edition of Dear Supervisor. I'm your host, Aleem Nagji. Happy to be back with you all again today. I'm really excited today to have a friend and colleague on with me, Dr. Kevin Dong. Kevin's an emergency medicine physician here in town. Kevin, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hey, thanks for having me, Aleem. Very excited to be on a podcast and being actually the one that gets interviewed. So this is amazing. My name is Kevin Dong. I am an emergency medicine physician (laughs) working at the uh, Hamilton Health Sciences and I'm a relatively new staff. It's my third year being a staff physician. So I'm hoping that I can impart some of my wisdom and experiences to some of uh, my colleague physicians who are also transitioning from a resident to staff physician. Oh my God, I can't believe you've been out for three years. Now I, I kind of feel old being like, I remember when you were a resident. <laughs> <laughs> Just means you're getting older. That's what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are so lucky to have Kevin on. Kevin actually is an experienced podcaster with several of his own podcasts. He's one of the brains behind the Mac Emerge podcast and also has a fantastic podcast on uh, Canadian where it kind of looks at like transitions. And so that's why we wanted to bring him on today to really speak about the transition from learner to teacher. And I wanted to kind of do a deep dive in that and pick your brain on those moments because I think those are seminal moments for our educators who are new to the role or perhaps taking on new roles within education and speak a little bit about how you manage those transitions and how we can navigate that as educators. Yeah, I think the world of transitioning into staff physician is a challenging one, not because it's you're creating a transition from now being a principal learner as a resident physician, even as a senior resident, and now turning into a staff physician. You know, there isn't really a good manual to say, okay, this is exactly how you do it. So for me, my interest has been, now I've become a staff physician, now what? What do I do? And I think that is multifactorial. There's so many levels to that. For example, I think the number one thing is now becoming an independent clinical practitioner where your main goal is to take care of your patients and be a a competent physician. And I think now looking back, 
that wasn't an issue because I think our residency programs across the country are so good at training residents to become competent staff and our knowledge is so good at the time of graduation. And so I think looking back, that that was obviously the number one goal, but it wasn't something now looking and saying, oh, that was a, that was a struggle. And I don't think a lot of our senior residents will feel that way. But I think what the issue is, is, is not about competence, but it's about confidence. It's about making that leap of, I'm going to become someone who's confident to not only take care of my patients, but now if you're working in, say, in an academic center where you have residents and, and junior learners to say, oh, I'm going to now feel confident to impart my, I guess, wisdom or my clinical experience and my medical education knowledge to these learners to hopefully help them get to where you are so that they eventually become successful and transition well into practice. So I think those tips that I received when I was transitioning and then some of the things I've worked on as I, in the last three years have really helped me get to where I am. And hopefully that uh, those things will help during this podcast and other podcasts alike will help uh, junior learners and senior learners to get to where I am hopefully uh, in, the, in the future for them. You know, so many health science professions employ a mentorship model, and it really makes me think about that Jedi training that we kind of go through, and many of us go through in the health sciences. And like you said, there's that dual challenge of being a clinician and then all of a sudden being an educator. And I think one of those big challenges is that imposter syndrome. How do I really take on the role of Yoda? And I think that that's a real dark side is getting sucked into the imposter syndrome and then feeling like I don't have the confidence to take on a learner. And when that happens early in your transition to faculty, it becomes difficult to take on a learner down the line. So how do we really defeat the dark side? Yeah, I don't know if I wouldn't say I'm a Yoda. I think that's a pretty lofty goal. <laughs> I think that's kind of a career thing. But I mean, you know, maybe Ben Kenobi in his early years, right? Like, you know, transition from, yeah. uh, say, like, a, you know, a junior Jedi kind of into more senior. I guess the toughest thing is, like I said, the mentality of it. The Imposter syndrome is real. And I know a lot of my faculty colleagues have talked about that from not just Emerge, but from all across our you know, departments. You know, the challenge of, uh, am I good enough? Am I ready? Not just clinically, but it's the medical education and the teaching and the educator part and being a scholar, right? So do I have that knowledge to impart my wisdom to learners and not, and the learners then saying, okay, oh, this guy's just a junior. He's not going to really be good enough or his, his knowledge is not really you know, valuable. And so these things do come into your mind. And, you know, it's funny when you think, when you talk about it, it sounds silly, but it does come to mind and it's real. And I think that uh, even mm-hmm. some of our senior colleagues probably would think about that way as well, considering that medicine changes so quickly, right? So I think the challenge is kind of a gaining that confidence. And it's it's tough. I, I would say it's hard to just say right after, right off the bat and on July 1st, you're going to have that confidence to be like, hey, now I'm the person to I'm the I'm the expert, but I think it's just slowly gaining that confidence, slowly gaining that knowledge to say, okay, no, I am competent. I'm able to provide that knowledge. And I know that I have my unique characteristics and traits that got me this job that will allow me to help my fellow junior colleagues to get to where I am. So I think that transition from junior or senior resident to staff physician is a challenging one. Like I said, there's no manual for it, but I think mm-hmm. eventually you'll get there. I think with a little bit of time, a little bit of mentorship from your senior colleagues as well, and I think a little bit of just experience. So I think those those elements will help people transition effectively 
Part of it is also normalizing this experience, it sounds like, right? Because I'm hearing you say that you went through it, your colleagues went through it, I remember going through it. And so part of it is just knowing that it's okay that this is a natural part of taking on this new roles. What are some pieces of advice that you would have for people who are undertaking this transition for themselves or looking forward and saying, I'm going to have to do this in the near future? Yeah, I think normalization is definitely one of the most key things. I would say the best way to normalize something is to find associates, find people, find partners who are going through the same walk of uh, of career life with you. So for example, the way that I did this was I would, we have a, like a WhatsApp group with my fellow colleagues that graduated together. And so say, for example, clinically, if there was a case that you felt uncomfortable because, and then you kind of start to attribute that because, well, maybe my senior colleagues would have done this and my junior colleagues or myself didn't do that because I'm a junior. I think, I think those things, and then you, you ask about those cases or difficult cases with your colleagues who are in the same level and they say, no, 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 like I would have done the same thing too. So I think that validation helps normalize the process mm-hmm. for that transition. And I think that goes along with the educator part as well. So for example, if you're teaching, say, PGY1s about certain, you know, say ACLS or, you know, I'm talking about the emerge world right now, but, or, or, you know, say whatever topic that you were assigned to do, you know, I would sometimes talk to my colleagues, maybe a year or two ahead and say, Hey, like, what, what did you guys do? And I found that if they did something similar or they validate what you did was seemed to be relatively appropriate. I, I would think that helps a little bit about, okay, well, I think I'm in that normal line. And at the same time, I think that normalization is important, but also I think it's also important to say that you also bring a special unique attribute. So maybe the way that you're doing is innovative. And so I I don't think you necessarily need to go down the route that everyone else is going through. But I think that if you need that support to, to help you gain that confidence, I think that's totally appropriate. The other thing that's really important is to find your mentors, right? So people always talk about residency and finding mentors during residency, but no one really actually talks about mentors during junior staff, mid-career staff and late-career staff, right? And so finding someone like yourself, Aleem, or Teresa Chan, who obviously everyone knows, you know, those people have really helped me get to where I am now. And obviously, it's so many things to learn, but just asking them, you know, what to do in certain special situations, whether that is teaching, whether that is some scholarship project, piggybacking on certain projects, you know, if you have an innovative idea, running by them and say, hey, what do you think this is? Do you think this is a good idea? And getting that teaching from your colleagues who are who may have just had a little bit more experience than you i think those things will help not only normalize but actually elevate your status not only as a junior teacher but as well as a staff physician so i think those things are are the tools that i use to help me get to where i am so it sounds like part of it is building your team building the avengers and bringing everyone together and once you do that once you build that community of practice it really allows you to excel but also within that knowing that you have that special talent whether you're spider-man or you're the hulk or you're black widow and then i'm also hearing you need someone to kind of lead that team so you need that iron man or captain america depends on if we're talking about which side of the civil war but really i see that the value of a, of a mentor later on once you actually become a faculty is so important and perhaps underutilized because i think that that's traditionally thought of as a trainee trainer relationship but once you kind of graduate in your faculty sometimes it can feel overwhelming or lost within your faculty of where do you go from here and how do you grow as the next steps and I think many of us in the health sciences feel that transition is a bit abrupt and you're kind of out on your own and you're now a clinician you're now a nurse you're now a physio whatever and you're now out in the world kind of doing things on your own and so that's a really good point to not forget to take your team with you from your training Um, so I really like the idea of staying in touch with colleagues and then continue to seek out mentors so those are some great 
great pieces of advice. Absolutely. I think realizing that your journey is not just by yourself. It's not a walk that you need to walk alone. It's a walk that not only your colleagues or your mentors or, you know, people that you seek help from, but it's also your family. It's, you know, making sure your wellness is intact, make sure, you know, you're very vulnerable at the time of transition, right? You know, you don't know how to do your billings. You don't know how to get out on time. (laughs) You know, you know, all the stuff that you don't think much about as a resident, um, I think apply and they're, they add to a lot of stress. So finding that team, the Avengers, I guess what you say, um, (laughs) I think those are going to help you transition effectively and become at the end of the day, not only a good clinician, but uh, a good medical educator. So if you're finally able to do it, if you're able to recognize the imposter syndrome, you're able to get your team together, how do you actually make that transition from getting mentorship to being a mentor? Because I think that was a challenge where I didn't really know how to take on that new role. What are some things you did to manage that piece? That's a difficult question. <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of it is organic, right? So, you know, I I, I think it's it's not really binary like that. I think uh, to me, I, th- I think it's a spectrum, right? So I still feel like I'm a, I think I've been a mentor since I was PGY1, you know, teaching medical students. And as I kept going up, I would be, continue to be a mentor. Uh, on top of that, I would still have mentors from when I was med student and now continuing to be my mentor, even what, seven, eight years uh, from Ooh, that's a long time, but I, I don't even remember then, but I still yeah. have people that I seek mentorship from, from that time. So I think it's important to, I think one of the things is people have a little bit of an ego. Like I, now I'm staff, you know, I'm going to have uphold. I'm, I am the top. I have this, I'm the best phenomenon. And I, I think you kind of have to let go of that. I think you have to say, listen, like it's a continuing professional development. Like this is, this is a journey. I would say some of my colleagues who I admire who are 20, 30 years out are still learning and still asking me for advice about certain clinical things because just because, like I said, things change. So, or, you know, some of the things that are more technologically different nowadays in terms of medical education, I think some of my older or experienced colleagues are asking me too. So I think, like I said, it's a spectrum. I think we shouldn't necessarily look at age or you know, specifically the amount of years of people have practice. I think those things are obviously important, but I think we should also value people for their skills and what the attributes they bring in. So if, you know, if you find a mentor mm-hmm. that you think is your junior in terms of your clinical years, but they, they know who, like certain things, for example, if they're really good at say podcasting, you know, that's someone that you may want to ask if you're interested in that. And so, like I said, it's a spectrum. I think you should really let go of those egos that make you say, okay, I'm 25 years in. I'm, there's no one I could get any mentorship from. I think that's wrong in my opinion. And I think that seeking mentors also makes you a better mentor yourself and vice versa. So I think just making sure that your ego has gone and that your real goal is just to better yourself and to help others become better as well. I think those things will help you to have a very rich career in medicine. I think the value of lifelong learning is really emphasized in what you said and that idea that everything is constantly evolving and growing. And so we can actually learn something from the individuals that we're teaching too. I think that's a really fantastic piece to keep in the back of your mind. I wonder if sometimes our hesitance to engage learners to teach us is because of our own imposter syndrome, right? Because if I ask the student to teach me something, perhaps that shows a, a, a break in my armor, right? It shows that maybe I'm not as omniscient as I thought I was or as I want to portray. And so sometimes accepting that reality that we can all grow together and embracing that growth mindset 
that probably leads to more fruitful mentor-mentee relationships and allows us to kind of exist on that continuum no matter where we are in our clinical career. I agree. I think I learned so much from my learners. I mean, one of the joys of working at an academic center is that you get to learn from so many people regardless of their training years. And I think we often also forget that some of our trainees may actually have more life experience than some of us. And you don't know what their past life has been. Like, for example, we just recently had a graduate from CCFPEM group, which is the emergency group from the family medicine stream. And he he has his JD, like he's a, he used to be a lawyer. So for me, oh, wow. I have so much to learn, right? Like there's so many things. And, you know, some of our IMG colleagues were cardiovascular surgeons, right? So I think that you can't assume that just because you're a little bit above years in training that uh, you've got it all, right? I agree. I think you just, you have to make sure that you come with an open mind. Obviously you have more experience, like you're definitely going to be the one imparting knowledge in the field that you are in. But I think if you shut yourself to say, I know everything, I think that's a flaw. I think that you're going to make mistakes. And I think that uh, you're doing yourself a disservice because you're not going to learn and get better. And that's part of like this medicine. That's the best part of medicine, right? Like this life of um, constant learning. That's that's really, I th- in my mind, that's the best part of me going to work. So I think if you keep yourself open and if you uh, make sure that you give everyone a chance, I think that's going to help you become not only a better clinician, but a better educator throughout your career. I think we sometimes forget that our learners have experiences outside of what they're bringing to the table from their traditional training. It's really cool to hear about like, you know, students who've done other things, maybe other careers or had other life experiences before they come in. And I think it's always valuable to engage that. I mean, I I didn't even know we had a lawyer in the program. I wish I did. So many of our shifts could have been a recreation of Suits episodes instead of uh, (laughs) seeing patients. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, that would have have been kind of interesting. (laughs) We're we're like a suit to work too. That'd be really funny. Yeah. <laughs> I was an eMERGE doc, by the way. Sorry. I know some of right. our colleagues listening probably were like, oh, I wear a suit to work. <laughs> That's great. So we really kind of touched on this imposter syndrome and how to defeat it, how to build our team that will kind of take us through it and talked about the spectrum of mentorship. Any other thoughts you want to leave people who are in those transition periods for pieces of advice or suggestions for how they can walk through that? I think one of the things that's really valuable looking back is whence you're at the senior resident stage, I think trying to build up certain aspects and and knowledge points regarding transition is going to be really helpful. So identifying mentors who you say, hey, listen, I'm graduating in like a couple months. I don't know if my licensing went through. I don't know anything about my finances. How do you bill properly? You know, if I saw this patient and it was kind of this and this presentation, it's not going to be in my textbook because a lot of medicine isn't in your textbook. I think I think really reaching out and finding those people that you know are even if you're graduated now they're going to transition into being a colleague and a friend and also helping you become this friend mentor. I think that would be one of the things that I really leave up to some of my senior resident colleagues who are going to transition very soon. I think the other thing is when you're a junior staff also especially say you're not in an academic center, then you're kind of stuck because you don't have a lot of those resources that may be present in a tertiary academic center. I think still reaching out to people like your chief or people that maybe are education heads in your group or people that you work with in the past that you really do admire and the way that they practice and they teach. I think those things, reaching out to them and and kind of, like I said, dropping that ego because you're not going to look weak to them. They're going to say, good, like, come in, come in, let's learn, let's talk about this. You know, I think those, those are the people that you need to 
engage and find and continue to foster that relationship. I think those things are going to help you because like I said, you're not alone. I think that's the main thing that people should try to get that out of their heads. And as long as you think that you're alone, that imposter syndrome is going to be real. It's going to continue to spiral into a a bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm So once you find these champions, these people that are going to be your allies, regardless of level of training, I think that will help you succeed and transition from not just competence, but confidence. So I think that's my main goal to, or or my main pearl I can leave with uh, people at similar stages where I am. It sounds like also identifying people who are about to enter that transition as an educator is an important part of our role. And it seems like that's something that we can do is just to look ahead and say, hey, I know you're going to be graduating soon. You're going to be getting your license. You're looking for jobs. Let me give you some advice on those pieces as well Um, and making that active effort. Because sometimes students feel awkward kind of reaching out and asking about the things that aren't in the sort of defined curriculum, right? If they're with you for a rotation to learn X, Y, and Z, you know, they're on the surgery service or on, you know, an outpatient clinic and they're here to learn some specific thing. um, Sometimes they may feel uncomfortable asking about all those things outside of that clinical environment that you share. But as we know, those pieces of life are so important to our overall quality of life and really our happiness and and longevity in our our careers that we spend so long training for. So I think that's a really good tip for for us as faculty to be aware of that. And when we have learners who are in that transition point to reach out and, and offer a hand and show them that vulnerability and that openness that hopefully they can then mirror with their own trainees in the future. Absolutely. I I agree with all that. I think reaching out to, especially as that senior role um, is will empower some of our junior learners to say, okay, like these things I need to identify as well. And I feel like those are the people that I feel comfortable with asking about that. And I just think that that opens up that window. That's like the gateway drug, right? Into transition to practice properly. So I think that's, that's a great pearl, uh, Aleem. Kevin, it was a pleasure having you uh, on the podcast today, and hopefully our listeners enjoyed hearing from you. If they're interested in hearing more, uh, more from you, can you tell them a little bit about your other podcasts? Yeah, so I got two podcasts. I guess this is my free advertising moment, so uh, I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> so the first one is, uh, like I said, I'm an emergency. Wait, I-, I thought you were sponsoring me for being on here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't get paid to be on what? here, guys, all right? <laughs> I, well, we talked about it. I was getting a PS5 for having you as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Good luck. So one of the podcasts I am in is called the Mac Emerge Podcast. It is a podcast for the Tri-Division of Emergency Medicine at McMaster as well as all the regional district sites that we have. And we feature Dr. Teresa Chan, Dr. Brendan Schotter, and many of the other residents that are involved and medical students are involved in the program. And we feature even uh, Dr. Aleem Nagji, so Nagji. So we have an awesome session <laughs> on teaching, teaching that counts and many pearls from not only clinical world, but medical education. Now, it is specifically for Emerge but it's actually applicable to probably all the specialties. So if you're interested, uh, take a listen. You can check check, up, check us up on Apple Podcasts. Just search Mac Emerge Podcast. The second podcast I'm in, so I'm the director of multimedia on Canadian, which is our kind of nationwide unofficial blog for emergency medicine. And they have a podcast called the Canadian Podcast where I host uh, some podcasts about transition to practice, but also we have a project that is having podcasts from many, many educators around the country, as well as North, actually all of North America, talking about different aspects of medicine. So if you want to check that out, go on canadian.org and you can check that on uh, the podcast over there as well. So my long plea to listen to some of my other works. That's awesome, man. Thanks so much for uh, being on our show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Liam. 
Wow, that was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. And now, on to our second segment. So hello, everybody. My name is Tracy Chan, and as you know, I am part of the team that's going to bring you some scholarly secrets in this podcast, and I am delighted to have friend, colleague, mentor, She's so many things to me, but Lara Varpio, Dr. Lara Varpio is an ectopic Canadian who is in the U.S. right now, and she's an adjunct scientist here for us at McMaster Education, Research, Innovation, and Theory Unit, so Merit. And so it's really awesome to have her involved with us at a distance, and she is such a wise person. I thought I'd bring her in to actually have a great conversation with me about the pleasure and pain of writing. I think this is something that we struggle with all the time as academics, and I think there is a lot to be said in this domain, but we're going to try to keep this to about 20 minutes and really dive into the conversation around academic writing and scholarship and all of that. So, Lara, if you want to say hello. Hi, Teresa, and hi, everybody. And Teresa, thank you so much for such a generous introduction. It really is my pleasure to be here. Having been in the field now for a few years, I know the ups and downs, the the sorrows and the joys of trying to write for academic journals. So if there's anything that I can share from my experiences, I'm just happy to do that. That's exciting. I mean, to me, writing is just as much a struggle now as it is and it was when I was first started. I mean, I think that I've found some tips and tricks to hack my way to success. I I think some basic things that I've learned along the way is never start with a blank page. So I have some templates now for different kinds of papers because then I don't start with a blank page. I start with things like filling out a grid about like my stuff. It it just lowers the bar to get, get started, right? But what are some things that you do when you start a paper? Like where do you start? Well, that's a great question, Teresa. So some days, I, I, my writing tends to fall into two kinds of categories. When I'm the first author of a paper, I have two kinds of experiences. One is that ideally, I've just finished either finishing the data analysis on a study, really very familiar with the literature that's been going on. I've been deeply immersed in the work. And I know the therefore statement I'm writing to, right? So when I say the therefore statement, I mean that the punchline of my story, the what I found is X and it matters to you because of Y right? That, that's the therefore statement. And if I know that, then writing a manuscript really often is relatively fluent exercise for me because I know what I'm writing to. I know the data inside out and backwards. I know which elements I want to cite. And so then it really is a matter problem with, I've never met a word limit that I didn't feel was more of a suggestion than a law. So I tend to write too much and then I, but I just write it all in one go. I just sit down and I start writing. The other experience is more labored, where I think I know the therefore statement, but there's something in it that's not quite sitting right for me. Or I have my results and my methods, but I'm not really sure what I'm going to talk about in the discussion, for instance. I usually have a pretty good sense of my introduction when I start writing. But one of the things that I always try to remind myself in those moments when I have when I, when I know this isn't going to be a fluid experience is that the experience of writing is actually an experience of thinking. When you are writing about your data or you're writing a manuscript, you're literally thinking through it in a different kind of way. And I feel that it's a deeper kind of way. So sometimes what ends up happening for me is that I write my paper and I end up changing the thing, the story, the, the, the narrative of it as I move forward until I get to a therefore statement that I did not have in mind when I started. And then I have to go backwards and kind of re-edit the whole paper back towards that therefore statement. So for me, the, the writing experience is really about, am I confident about where I'm going? 
then it's going to be fairly straightforward. But if I'm not confident about where I'm going, I have to trust the process and just keep writing. Yeah. Both of those styles of writing resonate with me. I've, I've lived both of them in the last month. I've had one paper that I just sat down and power wrote it because I knew exactly where I was going. I didn't even need an outline. It, it just, it just came out of me. Right. And that's yep. the, those are the pleasurable papers, you know, like, you know, your problem gap hook as kind of Lorelai Lingard writes yep. about, you know, that, that paper and perspectives. I really like, we'll throw it in the show notes, but it's basically the idea that you articulate your problem. You, you ex- explain the gap in the literature and then you kind of hook people in to get them excited about your paper. That's kind of like a, a good heuristic, I guess, for your introduction. If you know that, then you know the so what, who cares, and the, and exactly what you're saying, like this, therefore that, right? And in the discussion, you kind of know the literature. You just get a sense of where you want to pivot, where where you politically kind of want to go with the paper. Because sometimes, you know, everyone knows the discussion. It's why in EBM we always talk about like you know read the results, read the methods. The discussions all just gravy, right? Because yeah. a, a lot of the time, that's where the some of the spin comes, right? But as a, an author, I love the spin part a little bit. So, <laughs> But I think too, well, one of the things that makes writing those fluent days easy, or one of those things that, because I think it's, it's easy uh, as somebody who's done, as you know, both of us do a lot of writing in academia. So we have a fair, fair body of experience to draw on. I think there's a couple of things I would really like to encourage novice writers, academics joining the field to think about. One is that in order to be a better writer, you really need to invest in being a reader. So I read five or six of our major journals every time they come out. And I don't want to say that I read every single paper in there with a fine tooth comb attentively. I'm probably reading about half of them that closely. The other half I'm just skimming to get the content. But by reading those articles and by reading the journals, you get a sense of things like the audience. What, do, what does this journal aim itself towards, right? Because every medical education journal has a slightly different orientation. They, they're writing to a slightly different audience. So that means that by reading them, I understand the audience. By reading the journals, I understand what are arguments that have, that have good weight versus those I'm like, oh, that wasn't the best paper I've ever read, right? So, but by reading mm-hmm. and continually engaging with the literature, mm-hmm. by reading the kinds of articles you want to publish, you will be a better writer. The other tip that I really want to recommend to people who are just joining the field is to register yourself as a reviewer, because one of the most important learning experiences I've had in my progress as an author in this field is doing more reviews. And if I can make a quick shout out here, medical education has, uh, the journal Medical Education has something called the editorial internship. And I would very strongly advocate for anybody interested in seriously delving into the field to apply for that internship. I was fortunate to receive it once upon a time. And you get a really robust understanding of how the, the process of editorial work works, how it runs. And you also get a peek behind some of the reviews that you get. And when you are a reviewer of articles, especially with some of our field stronger journals, not only do you write the review, but you also get all of the reviews back afterwards. So you can start to see what other people picked up on. You're going to get some examples of what really good reviews look like, of what people are concerned about. And by being a good reader and by being a reviewer, you will actually be a better writer. Both of those things resonate with me. I think I probably still review and edit too much, but I actually find such pleasure in doing that work because I think it does actually inform my own practice, right? So it's kind of like if you never went to, as a clinician, if you never did an M&M rounds, you never went to other people's presentations, if you never, you know, even just like sat around and talked with other people about your craft, you're not going to get better at it. I think that that's, we, we know that that's the case is that you need to surround yourself with your community. And how awesome is it that people literally 
are falling over themselves to ask you for that privilege and that that perspective that you have. It's one of those things that I think that return of service, we call it sometimes for making the peer review machine run. For every paper that you publish, you know, like at least three to four people have worked on it, right? You've got your editor, you've got several reviewers, sometimes multiple editors, depending on the situation. And so I think that being able to return that service is important as well as citizenship. But on top of that, what it is, is that you can get something out of it yourself. Right. That's, that's beautiful, yeah. right? Like it's, a, it's transactional in some ways, but, but I think that's okay because I think that anytime you do something additional, you should actually be able to get something out of it. If you don't, then you're just doing it for the sake of doing it. Now, and you're going to know the name of this thing, but closer and faster than I do, but you can actually get credit for the reviews you do, right? What's ah, that system yeah. called? So there's a there's a uh, social media platform uh, run by Elsevier. So you know, depending on mm-hmm. your your stance on big publishing companies, it's called Publons.com, and you can register for an account, and you can actually keep your analytics. So uh, both as an editor and a reviewer, and it actually is really cool because it gives you quantitative statistics. Which uh, since you and I both do a lot of qual, but you, yeah. your quantitative statistics on how that many works too. Reviews. Yeah, <laughs> they I I know right now my review to paper ratio is one nine reviews to every paper that I publish. I know right now that I write about two times as many words as everyone else in the entire database when I write reviews. And that McMaster in general, probably because I pull it up. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but <laughs> McMaster uh, faculty who engage in peer review actually write about, a, about 100 words more than yeah. everyone else. So that's really cool to know. It also helps me because in our academic merit system, I actually do get rewarded for my work as a, as a reviewer, as an yeah. editor. It's not universal across all the departments. It's not universal across all divisions and, and, and things. But I, I do think that it's, it, it's something that I, I need to keep track of. So it's yeah. a great convenient way to do it. And it, it's, I think, not to plug Publons, but it's, that's exactly the system I was thinking about. But it does provide you with evidence in your CV of the amount of work and service that you're doing if you need that kind of evidence. So I think that's useful. And I agree with you, Teresa. One of the things I try to do is that for every paper I publish, I try to do two to three reviews for the journal at the same time. Because if we don't pay it back, then the system starts to fall apart. Now, my friend Tony Artino uh, will have a few thoughts about reviews. He has a few dozen thoughts about reviews, so I won't steal his thunder because you might want to talk to him one day. But, you know. T- Tony and I are on Twitter buddies, and so we've had this argument. Exactly, <laughs> right? The argument, right. Well, then I'll, I, won't, I won't give it away for your listeners. I'll let you talk to him about yeah, the, yeah. the work of reviewers and those yeah, sorts of things. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that like, there's obviously a big movement online to to talk about whether or not this should be paid work, right? Like, and publishing companies are making billions of dollars. That's why right. I said there's controversy around Elsevier and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. We all break our backs volunteering, reviewing, editing. Maybe some of the editors in chief have a bit of a stipend, but it's not like, you know, millions of dollars or anything. They're not like yeah. movie producers. And so, and so it, it is something to think about. But I mean, that's a really good insight about the reviewing. And, and I think that a lot of junior scholars probably get told that they should focus on their writing. And I think that what I really like that your perspective is, is that you can't learn without seeing mistakes. And why should you make your own when you can watch other people do theirs? And it's, it's like going to the sim lab, right? Like to me, it's as a clinician, I, I want to in a safe space where it's not my mistake. It's not someone, not something high stakes for me. I want to be able to learn. And so reviewing someone else's paper, helping them get better, because they're probably going to get accepted in many cases, somewhere, uh, somewhere, giving feedback, providing that insight being able to critically read something with a Michelin star chef's uh, <laughs> yeah, right, rating, you know, on like it. rating, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, to, to think of yourself as that tastemaker of science, I think is, 
is really powerful. And whether you're a clinician who's writing for a clinical journal, whether you're a uh, medical education specialist uh, writing for that, I think that we all we all need that perspective, right? And and I think that it's really cool when we can bring yeah. all those uh, perspectives together through a series right. of interviews. So you mentioned uh, Lorelai Lingard's piece in Perspectives on Medical Education about Problem Gap Hook. Yeah. I can't recommend enough all yeah. of the pieces in the in the Writer's Craft. Now I do have to put my caveat here that I wrote one, so you know. I, yeah, I was gonna say uh, you're one of our. Authors. Yeah, yeah. So, but, <laughs> so I don't mean to self-promote, but Lorelai has written some excellent pieces in there, yeah. and I think one of the ones that uh, we're talking about here is that she talks about writing as entering a conversation. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And you're entering a conversation in the journal. So if you haven't been reading the journal, you don't know the conversations that are going on. So, and if you haven't been reviewing for the journal, then you don't know the critiques that are leveled against articles that prohibit them from being part of the conversation. So reading and writing, I think are really important. Another piece that I would recommend for junior writers is that sometimes the hardest thing to write is the introduction or the conclusion. So what I do often with my junior writers, some of my graduate students, is I talk to them about, we'll start with the methods, right? Because you already know the methods and you probably already have a draft of them from your IRB. Right. So starting with the methods is often an easier place to start. The other thing is that once you've got your methods done, you probably already know your results. So write your results section second. And then by that point, now you have half your paper written. Now all you need to do is bookend it. Now it's all you need to do is bookend it. But at least you have a pretty robust starting point. And then if you can write your problem gap hook paragraph and try to use that as a first paragraph of your paper, then the rest of it starts to flow. It gets a little bit easier. I, I do something that's uh, bizarre when I get stuck. I actually get a deck of sticky notes out. And I write all my thoughts down, like just dump. Because I'm not a very yeah. organized thinker. I'm an emerge doc, like as a, you know, like, I have no attention span. Sometimes I, I think about something. <laughs> exactly. I'm like bouncing all around. And so I'm not always organized, but I can organize myself. And so what I do is I take a bunch of sticky notes and I write one thought per sticky note. Sometimes it has a PMID number on it. Sometimes it has a DOIO number. Sometimes it just has someone's name on it, like Varpia. Yep. And it's to remind myself that that's something I want to cite. That's something I want to put into the conversation. Uh, that I'm, I'm writing down, right? And so yeah. what I do is I dump it all down and then I take a second color of sticky notes and I put the headings for the paper. Ah. I put them in front of myself and I create a storyboard and ah. then I lay that all out in front of me. So on a wall, on a table, whatever. And then I put the sticky notes in the order, kind of like a Pixar animation studio. Uh, you know, like the, this is what they do. That's how they like make yeah, finding door, like finding yeah, yeah. door or whatever, right? Like they actually put the storyboard in order. And so I call it storyboarding. And actually, uh, it's how I make sure the logic of the paper sat rounds true. Because right. sometimes when you're typing, it's so linear that you can't move things around easily. Yeah. You can't like, yeah. there's something about the tangibility of the sticky notes. And you can use a digital media like Jamboard yeah. or, or something like that to do the same thing. But the idea is that sometimes your thoughts don't flow the same way. Uh, so changing up the media really helps yeah. me. And then what I find is that if we can put an order, then now I take that deck of sticky notes. And I know exactly what my next thought right. is. And it's right. so much easier to write once I know yeah. where I'm going. Like, as you said, right? And I think one of the things that's really imp- uh, important about that and impressive about that, uh, Teresa, is that one of the most important things, one of the most important elements of your writing, and if, I, if your listeners take one thing away from this, I hope, our conversation, I hope it's this, you're, you're writing an argument that needs to have a logic. 
right? And so if your logic starts to fall apart, if your connections don't make sense, if, if A doesn't lead logically to B to point C to point D, then the whole manuscript falls apart. So thinking about what are the connections between my ideas? How do these things lead A to B to C? What are the, what are the therefore statements that connect them or the however statements that I need to frame this around? That logic is the core of your paper. After that, then you're starting to get into window dressing, right? And then it's about describing it and, and putting things on there. But you, that logic is the core of your paper. So I would really like to encourage your listeners to think hard on the on the logic of the paper. The only other thing that I, I, I thinking about your post and notes reminded me that there is going to be more content that you can put in a paper than you will have words for, which means that you have to be okay with the idea that even though you read 30 articles, I don't know how many you read, but let's say you read 30 articles to get ready to write this paper, maybe only 10 of them are gonna get in. Or you know, maybe you have eight, 10 different ideas, but only four of them fit the logic of this paper. So it's, I think it's really important to be ready to be a little bit vicious with your writing and with your thinking and your ideas, because not everything's going to make the cut. It's the same thing with qualitative data, right? You're never going to report all of your data set because there's just so much of it. So you have to be okay saying these pieces make the cut for this paper and the other pieces can make the cut for a different paper or they just may not make the cut at all. Yeah, sometimes you just, you know, fangirl and fanboy, so many great scientists out there that you're just swimming in the literature when you're writing and so i think that taking a step back and zooming out this is this happens with some of the junior authors that i work with it happens with me still sometimes i'm just super immersed in something super excited and i'm just like i want to cite like 32 papers in two paragraphs and it's just unwieldy right and so i find that taking a step back and saying okay so what is core to the argument I'm trying to make. Yep. My partner is a lawyer. So like, you know, he's always talking about arguments and, and really that's what it is. It's like, what are the logical statements? And then, and then how do you put that in? And, and it's yep. always good to have a balance, right? That like you can't just be selling something. I, we talked about spin earlier, but you also have to be a little bit acknowledging of the rest of the conversation. And so if there's controversy, you have to highlight it and you have to have some contrary papers probably that highlight some of the hot spots. Different perspectives. Yeah. And I think, that that's all part of trying to figure out what the great story that you're trying to tell is. So what's exciting for me about our conversation today, Teresa, is that we've talked about writing in terms of being a reader and a reviewer. And we've talked about writing in terms of having a logical argument and cutting things out. And I think that's a really good orientation for us because so often we think about writing as production, you know, Mm -hmm. sit down and get words on paper. But there's so much more involved in writing than just getting words on paper. In fact, you know, I know some of my some of my learners find it much easier to dictate papers mm. and then cut and move and do those sorts of things, yep. right? But I think getting the words on the paper, we often focus on that as the writing activity, but there's really so much other stuff going on. Yeah, it's the cognition, it's the preparation, it's uh, it's all of that stuff. That it's the conversation you're having in your head with 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 your audience, right? Like that's really what it is. And yeah. like you said, dictation is actually a great way to do it. That's a great pro tip. I'm going to call that one out because I think now with uh, iPads and and voice memos and stuff like that, why not just right? Like, in your car, you have 20 minutes, like turn on the voice recorder, talk to yourself for 20 minutes. You can always listen to it, transcribe. You could also even just like, honestly, you could use the dictation app uh, to actually do that. And I find sometimes if I'm really stuck, uh, that's a great way because then it's easier to edit than it is to write. To write. Yeah, exactly. So uh, sometimes you just need words on a page. You just can't stare at that 
blinking icon anymore. And, and, and all those strategies, the sticky notes, the dictation, yeah. all of that stuff gives you something. I'm looking at your previous artifacts, like your grant and your, and your IRB or REB proposal, your protocol, all of that stuff is work that you've done before. So if you can bring it all out, mess with it in front of yourself and then give you something together. Right. So those are great tips. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It was a great delight to chat with you about this. Yes. It was my pleasure to be here. The one, the only thing I want to encourage your, your listeners to do then as we end is just keep writing. Don't stop. Don't give up. Just keep writing. Sometimes you just got to be like uh, Dory. Like I said, like keep 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 swimming. swimming. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.